0: Folks, if you have that Exodus passage open before you this morning, we're going to be working our way through Chapter Three, uh, but then also Chapter Four. So we'll do a couple of chapters today. Um, I feel a little bit under time pressure as I try to do that. So um, we'll we'll try and get going here and and see what what these. Um, what these records of God's dealing with Moses and his dealing with his people Israel have to say to us here today. Let's pray before we do that. Father God, we don't know how to live well. We don't know the right direction in which to go. There's much confusion and much disillusionment for us. But we know that you would show us your way You want to come to us, show us who you are and who we are, and call us to live and follow Jesus. Help us just for these next few minutes uh, as we spend this time in your word to to get new clarity for this life that you've called us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We began this series last week uh, looking at chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. And those two chapters tell the story of God's people, Israel, how they came to be in Egypt. And it tells of a a pretty bleak time in their history. As their number and influence grew from being just 70 people to being a a sizable population, uh, Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt at that time, came with his own uh, final solution to the Jewish problem. He said that all Jewish boys should be killed. And we were reading about this absolute low point in the history of God's people uh, when when their very uh, future was in doubt. We noticed in those two chapters, if you were here last week, you'll remember, we noticed how God didn't seem to do anything. We thought a lot about the absence of God, God's silence when he doesn't seem to be involved or to be acting. And then right at the end of chapter 2, Uh, when it becomes almost unbearable, we read finally that God heard his people groaning and was concerned about them. So God finally, at last, it seems, sees his people's pain. He's about to act and he's about to work his salvation. In chapters three and four today, we're going to see how that slowly begins to work itself out. The wheels of salvation slowly begin to turn. And what we're going to see is that God doesn't work in an impersonal way. He doesn't, from a distance, impose his salvation, but instead he gets people involved in in bringing a message and bringing his salvation. So he chooses Moses. The first 10 verses of the chapter tell of how Moses is given his commission. Um, He's at work when God calls him to do, do this work. Notice that. He's doing his nine to five. He's watching the sheep, because that's what he does. And in the middle of the bleeding and of the dust, he he sees out of the corner of his eye a bush on fire. He realizes soon that it's not an ordinary bushfire, because as he watches this bush, he notices that though it's, it's on flames, it's burning, it doesn't burn up. He goes a little closer, and at this point, he has a sense of God speaking to him. God tells him to be careful, God says that this place where they're meeting together is a holy place. And then God identifies himself. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses, we read, is terrified. And then God tells Moses what he wants him to do. He's already terrified before he hears what he's supposed to do. But then he hears, Moses, I've seen what's happening to my people I want to come down and rescue them. I want to bring them out of that place, Egypt, into a beautiful place, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I want you to do it. I want you to go and bring a message to Pharaoh that you're going to take his workforce from out under his nose and take them to a land that I've prepared for them. Wow. What a a job... Uh, to be given to do. Folks, it's, it's exciting for us to think about God's salvation, those of us who have any sense of it and who have begun to understand it. It's even exciting to hear that, that this news is for everyone, that it's to go across the street and across the world. But things take a turn for the worse when we realize that we're the ones Who are supposed to do this, who are to take this message of God's salvation uh, to the people around us. Like Moses at the burning bush, we have been commissioned. We stand with the commission of Jesus ringing in our ears that we're to go and make disciples of all nations. We've had that burning bush experience, we've been called to be messengers of God's salvation. I wonder how you feel about that this morning. About sharing Jesus with your, your family or your colleagues, your neighbors and your friends. I guess that the, the vast majority of us feel pretty hesitant about that. Uh, we have our excuses lined up. We feel hesitant about it And even those times when we do feel like we try it, when we want to obey, we find that we're not very well qualified. Well, as we read this Exodus narrative this morning, we're going to see Moses' response to God's commission, and we're going to see that we're not alone, because Moses, too, is reluctant and full of excuses, and actually not very well qualified. So, a good part of our passage this morning has to do with Moses' excuses for not taking on this work that God calls him to. Let's let's move through them very quickly these next few minutes. Moses' first excuse in verse 11 Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So he pleads inadequacy. Are you kidding me, a shepherd, go and speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? Actually, the problem, I think, here is God's sense of timing. Forty years ago, this would have made sense. If God had come to the young Moses, the Moses of Pharaoh's court, the Moses who'd just been educated in the best education system the world had to offer in that day, Moses with his own power and prestige, then this might have made sense. But not now. Not when he's got a career of shepherding in the, Midian ship, in the Midian wilderness behind him. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God doesn't actually try and convince him that he is adequate uh, when you see God's response. Implicitly, I think God's saying, yeah, you're right. You're not adequate. But God says, I will be with you. Folks, inadequacy, it seems, is still one of our our most popular excuses for not sharing Jesus today. I I couldn't do that. I I couldn't share Jesus with anyone else. I I just that's not me. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough theology. I'm I'm an introvert. Inadequacy is still our excuse and still I think God's response is to promise his presence. It's not to make us adequate. It's to tell us that he will go with us. What did Jesus say to his disciples as he left them with the job of bringing the gospel to the world? He simply told them, I will be with you to the end of the age. Nothing in you guys qualifies you for this job But my presence does. You'd think that the promise of God's presence would would swing it, but of course not. Moses, like me, has plenty more excuses. And his next excuse or objection comes in verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? then what shall I tell them? God's response doesn't seem especially helpful at first, if I'm honest here. God says, I am who I am. It's the kind of response that opens up new questions rather than answering the, the one question that had been asked. So we need to pause here for a second and think about what all this means. This this thing that God says here, this I am what I am phrase, this becomes God's primary name among his people. So over time, this this mysterious, this mysterious phrase where God talks about the life that's within him, it, it becomes just very central in the life of God's people. They actually shortened it into a, a verbal noun of four letters. Gary, if you could pop that slide up on the screen for us here. The four letters that we are sure of in the Hebrew are the, the YHWH, but in Hebrew you can't always be sure what the, the vowels are in a particular expression, so we're not sure how to pronounce this, but we think it's Yahweh. And Yahweh becomes the name that God's people use mostly throughout the Old Testament for God. It, it's used 6,700 times in the Old Testament Whereas the, the more generic word, which just means God, is, is only used 2,500 times. So, so, this moment where God speaks of himself in these terms is absolutely fundamental in the life of God's people. Now, that's, it's easy to say all that, but what does it mean? Well, I read a little bit about what it means this week. I think I could have gone on and read a lot and still getting any sort of clarity or, or any consensus of opinion would be impossible. The only consensus I'm coming to is that nobody, nobody can come to a conclusion. Nobody's sure what this means. I'll share with you one translation that I saw that I, that I thought was, was close to the truth and, and carried some power in it. One translation, one of the commentators says this means, I am there wherever that may be. I'm really there. So God appears to Moses and says, listen, the most fundamental thing about me is my my presence. I'm here. I exist. I'm irrefutable. Eugene Peterson asks the question about this response. He says, is the name purposely enigmatic? Is it revelational but not telling everything? Does it disclose intimacy and personal presence? but at the same time preserve mystery? Does it forbid possession and control? I think so, says Peterson. So God appears to Moses, and he tells Moses that he's willing to make himself known to him, but that we can't box him in. He is who he is, and we can't define him in any other terms. In the end, when you read this passage and take it as a whole, what you'll see is that God doesn't allow himself to be defined by in words, but only in actions. And God's actions in this chapter is that he's a God who comes and establishes relationship, who loves people and saves them. And that's really as much as God tells us about himself in the Bible, that he loves people and that he's come to save them. Isn't that what John 3 16 is all about. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves and God saves. It's not really until Jesus comes, I think, that we begin to see with greater clarity who God really is. In the life that Jesus lived, we see this, this love lived out. In Jesus' death, we see what this, this salvation costs God and what it might mean to us. Look to Jesus. This is who God is. We've taken more time on this second of Moses' excuses. We're going to deal very quickly with the, the others. Moses' third excuse comes in the opening verse of chapter 4. Look at it. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Again, I think this one sounds very contemporary if I think of my own reasons for not sharing Jesus with people around me. People just aren't interested. What if they don't believe or what if they don't listen to me? As I say, at first we might imagine that that's a new objection, something that, that feels particular to our time and our place. Uh, we imagine that this is the hardest time to share Jesus. But here in Exodus, we see that this objection has been around since day one. God just simply says to Moses, listen, Moses, I'm going to give you some power to do some signs, and this will show people that, that I am with you and that they should listen to you. Folks, I'm going to compress a little what I have in my notes here, but that's exactly how Jesus ministered. He, he spoke, he shared the message of salvation, and he had power at work in his life through his miracles to, to make that evident to people. Nowadays, you and I aren't going to have, by and large, this kind of power at our disposal. But it's interesting... God still expects that our actions will validate our words. Jesus says to his disciples, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Our actions either give or fail to give credibility to our words. I think that's the kind of thing that we've been learning here for quite a while now in Kirkpatrick Memorial in our church community and change process. How can this church become a place of of action that shares the gospel as well as just words? Moses' fourth objection. It feels by this stage that Moses is starting to run out of excuses. So he resorts finally to one that we've all used from time to time. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Lord, I've never been eloquent neither in the past nor since you spoke to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Jesus, I I just couldn't do this. I couldn't talk to people about my faith. I'm just not good at, at talking like this. And God's response here to Moses is the one that's echoed throughout the Bible and throughout the history of God's people. God says, don't worry about not having words, because I'll give them to you. Jesus promised this to his disciples. Um, Acts tells the story of people with limited words speaking for God, Peter, Paul. I just wonder how open we are recognizing the limit that we have to allowing God to speak through us. I wonder if I'm open to that. When we get to Moses' final objection in verse 13, there's a sense that this has always been coming. I I quite enjoy this response because he's finally said what he's always had in his mind. Look at verse 13. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. It's kind of always been there. He tried a few gentler uh, refusals, but here it is. I don't want to do it. Find someone else. I like... Moses' honesty, it feels like it's been wrung out of him or squeezed out of him. But again, God doesn't sidestep him. God says, yes, I'll give you some help. I'll let your brother Aaron work alongside with you, but you're going to be involved in this, Moses. You're going to play your part in sharing my salvation. Folks, we often... I think one of our biggest mistakes in reading scripture is to make biblical characters into heroes. Do we want to make Moses a hero after what you've read today? This guy doesn't want to do the thing that God is calling him to do. Uh, When it comes to evading God's call in his life, he'd give any one of us a run for our money. But he's not only unwilling. If you if you read the last part of our passage today, you see that he's unqualified. In chapter four, we read one of the weirdest passages in the Bible, I think the second half of chapter four. Moses finally does set off for Egypt. He's on his way to do this work that God's commanded him to, and then we read that God's going to kill him. And then his wife Zipporah circumcises his son, and all of a sudden, things seem to be all right again. What is the point of that story? Well, it's there, I think, to to illustrate that Moses is totally unqualified for this. He's not only unwilling, he's unqualified. Here he is going to God's people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who were told when God made a covenant to Abraham that they were to circumcise their sons. And here's Moses going to set himself up as the great leader, the one who's going to lead these people, and he hasn't even obeyed the stuff himself. He's not living the life himself that God calls his people to, and now he's going to go and uh, and call others into this life. Friends, isn't that finally another huge reason why we don't like to call other people to follow Jesus. It's because we're not convinced that we're living this life ourselves. Somewhere deep in the heart of us, there's a knowing sense that, goodness, why can I, or how can I talk to someone about Christian faith? Look look at this life that I'm living. We're not qualified. As I said, folks, it feels like a bit of a whistletop stir- tour, something, of these two chapters. But we're out of time here this morning. We've been thinking about how God calls us, people like us, to participate in this work of salvation, bringing this message to the world, and we've seen how God called Moses. It, it's difficult, I think, to think of a more unlikely candidate He's an excuse-making, poorly qualified loser. God hands the work to this this foot-dragging guy who who seems like it's the last thing in the world he wants to do. He's just so reluctant to obey God. I, I see a lot of myself in these chapters. And maybe you do too. And maybe that's the point. Maybe in the end, we have to recognize that salvation is God's work. Jesus is the one who saves. God's in charge of all of this, not us. If our family and our friends, if our neighbors and our colleagues are ever to find Jesus Christ, it won't be because we're somehow brilliant evangelists just wonderfully eloquent at sharing the good news, it's because God, in His grace and mercy, doesn't bypass us. He puts up with our excuses for long enough. He he puts up with our lack of qualifications, and He uses those stumbling moments where we maybe once in a a blue moon or once in a lifetime open our mouths and share Jesus. Jesus. Folks, if people are going to find Jesus and if we're going to play our part in this, it's only going to be about a massive act of God's grace. Not because of our willingness or our qualifications. But he's going to do this. Salvation is what God does. And he's going to invite us to play our part. Let's pray. Father God, as we read this story of a hesitant and a stumbling Moses, we see so much of ourselves here. Lord, we thank you that in the end, you did not bypass him. Thank you that in the end, despite all our excuses and all our limitations, you long to use us. Lord, we pray that we might share Jesus with people around us, We pray that this church, with all its frailties and flaws, might become a place where your good news is shared with many. But Lord, help us never to lose sight of the fact that you are doing this, and only you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.